Welcome to Story of a Storyteller. I'm your host, Connor Braden. This is the show where I found out all about the ins and outs of the lives of storytellers of all kinds. You can find my free novella, The Stolen Dagger, episode show notes, links to all sorts of amazing books, and more at connorbraden.com slash podcast. Enjoy! Hello, story lovers. This is season three, episode three of the podcast. Today, my guest is Marcus E. Ackle. Marcus is an actor, a radio show host, a YouTuber, a, it keeps going, a stage actor, a film director, and he writes graphic novels and literary novels. Whew. <laughs> if you couldn't tell, Marcus is a very busy man, but one common thread I hope you've noticed in all of them is that everything that he does has something to do with telling stories. As the youngest of four, Marcus was never really allowed to star in the fun home movies that he and his family made. He was always told that he was too young and that it wasn't his time. So it seemed that this gave him a very serious appetite for storytelling. When the family moved from Nigeria to England, that started Marcus's attempt at being a serious actor. We talk about the big culture shocks of moving from one continent to another, what it's like to be in a 24-hour play... It's not quite what it seems, it sounds like, but it's still very intense. And how a chance encounter led to him becoming a radio host. For my own updates, I have been very busy the last week. Um, I wrote out the plan for not only book two of the series that I'm writing, but book three and the final book, which will be book four. Um, so it's a series that started with The Longest Night. For now, when I refer to it, I'm just going to call it The Longest Series, because <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. But that's definitely not the name. I do have potential names for the series as well as for the next three books, but I'm not going to announce or say any of them until I'm 101% certain that they are the names. I also, because I do love to keep myself busy and give myself even more work, I also sent off a manuscript that I wrote for a picture book. I sent it to an Irish publisher. So submitting to publishers and everything like that is uh, kind of funny. Um, Here in Ireland... Most Irish-based publishers take what is known in the industry as unsolicited submissions, which basically means um, any author is allowed to just submit directly to the publisher and say, hey, look, check this book out, what do you think? Um, Whereas the industry standard worldwide is, to the best of my knowledge, that you have to have an agent first, and then the agent will hear of a publisher saying, you know, we're looking for a picture book, and then agent will say well I, I have a guy who has a picture book and it's quite good check it out so it's it's funny so I published I, I wish I published I submitted to a publisher but they told me that it'll be at least three months till I hear back so that's a while uh, and because I want to look at UK based publishers and US based publishers for this picture book I also submitted to a literary agent which is basically the same thing I sent the manuscript to them and said hey take me on What's interesting about an agent as opposed to a publisher, though, is an agent takes you on as a writer, whereas a publisher will take a publisher will take you, you your book as opposed to you. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. So I'll be waiting a while, so don't be expecting any big announcements next week. <laughs> but I always imagined myself as a hybrid author, an author that would self-publish and traditionally publish depending on the um, piece of work that I'm publishing. And I just think children's publishing it might be easier to go traditionally and... Uh, with my longest series I'm going to go self-published so it's nice to have taken the first step towards being a full-time hybrid author anyway that's enough for me for now so let's check out the interview with Marcus Marcus 
Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Story of a Storyteller, the podcast where I chat to different storytellers and find out why they are the way they are. I've yet to get a proper intro. Um, I, I, every every episode I'm like, I'll just think of it on the spot and every episode I'm very disappointed in myself. Um, my guest today is uh, Marcus Ako and he is the otherwise known as the Idiot on the Writer's Block, um, which is a very good name, but I... I also think you're not an idiot for what it's worth. Uh, well, but to be honest, everybody else says, well, why do you call yourself the idiot on the writer's block? My wife is like, why are you telling everyone you're an idiot? And it's like, we, we know you are. Why are you just telling everyone? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. That, that's why I'm saying it. I'm the idiot on the writer's block. So, yeah. It's very good. Well, as you said, um, Marcus is the brains behind the idiot on the writer's block YouTube channel, um, a channel where he talks to other writers Um as you say in your own description, I'll talk to experts, but I'd like to add in experts plus one Egypt because I've been on the show and I don't consider myself an expert in any way, shape or form. But that's your decision. <laughs> see, see, this is the thing. You say there was another uh, another writer. You're the set. No, actually, you're the third person that has called themselves an idiot as well when I've invited them to come on the show. So there's, there's a writer, uh, Jamie Farley, who she does wonderful blogs on various aspects of writing and, and books and so on and so forth and the publishing industry and whatnot. And she said, she will only come on the show if I were to refer to her as fellow idiot. So if you look at any of the videos, when I do the little inscription that comes up with the tag to say your name and your profession underneath, she I put her on there, Jamie Fairley, writer and in quotes, fellow idiot. idiot. Nobody, nobody has said anything yet because I'm waiting for someone to say, oh, I can't believe you're calling her an idiot. You're the idiot. That's fine. You can call yourself that. So I get canceled. For her calling her, me calling herself her. an idiot, yeah. Yes, I exactly. So, but I'm waiting for that, and I've got the uh, screen prints of her saying to me, "It's okay. That's what I want you to call me." I'm like, so you're yeah. sitting there, locked and loaded, ready to be cancelled. Oh, oh, and then it's, it's got to the point where I'm like, at first I was like, "Be very, very careful. You don't want to get cancelled." And then nobody's really trying to cancel me. I'm like. Why is no one trying to cancel me? Um, maybe if I throw something in there, I'm going to say something really provocative. And my version of prov- provocative is idiot. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, no, dude, trust uh, me. Anyway, so um, you mentioned the YouTube channel, but you're a man of many, many hats. Like when I was looking through your your website, I was like, the list is endless. It's like... It's like <laughs> It's like when you're, you know, when you're um, writing out something for your CV and you're like, oh, and I did this, oh, and I did this, and I'm done. You must be like, and I did this, and this, and this, and this. So we have stage acting, your filmmaking, your podcasting, the host of a radio show, your YouTube videos, which we've mentioned. You have a graphic novel that uh, came out uh, recently enough, and you also have a non-graphic novel a literary novel a literary yeah, I, don't, I don't even know how to address that it's like when people say oh so what, what kind of books are you writing i'm like well I'm, i've written a graphic novel and i'm writing a novel novel, novel. <laughs> it's like okay um but i have noticed a pattern and i hope listeners have too and this is the main reason i got you onto the show is all of them in one way shape or form are something to do with telling a story um in every way shape and form and i i i know hosting a radio show i know you have guests on your radio show um but that is a really like you're, you're kind of pulling the story out of somebody else which i would argue is a way of storytelling so if you look back to little wee eight-year-old marcus um can you see the roots of that love of storytelling back then or is it something that just happened as you grew up 
Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, way back when, and I, I've told this story a number of times, so it's, it's um, codified in my head, right? Um, the very, people say, oh, how is it that you know what you've always, what you wanted to be? I'm like, well, here's why. When I was like eight years old, around that time, right? Oh, so I think I, the right age. <laughs> you did. No, you, you absolutely, you nailed it. It's like around eight years old. Um, eight, yeah, I wanted to become a priest, right? Because I, I'm, I'm a um, Catholic. I was raised Roman Catholic. I still consider myself a Catholic, even though um, I haven't been to church in quite a while, but I'm blaming on COVID. So that's fine. Um, so I wanted to be a priest, right? Because the, my favorite priests were the ones who would move away from the lectern and just preach. And, you know, they were entertaining. They told stories and they stuck with me, right? So I was like, you know what? That sounds like fun. I want to do that. I know the Bible. I want to be able to go out in front of people and just do the same thing, tell stories and so on. And then I found out around 10, 11, that pretty much around the same coincidentally when puberty hit that uh, priests weren't allowed to have sex. And so I was like, okay, that's not for me. So I moved on from that. Um, and then I was like, okay, what else would I want to do? And I thought, okay, maybe I can become a soldier, right? Because, you know, get guns and jump into in wars and whatnot. But I realized that very quickly the people who shoot back and that was a problem. So I was like, okay, that's not for me. Uh, and then I kept on moving from one to the next to the next. And when I looked back, I found out, and this was, and I actually remember the exact moment that this happened. I was about 15. We'd moved from uh, Nigeria, where I was born and raised, to the UK. And around the age of 15, I was watching TV. And this is the point where I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I know I'm 15, yet why am I having a midlife crisis at 15? But I was like, okay, I can't think of anything that I want to be when I grow up. And then I was watching an episode of Moesha. I don't know if you know the show yeah. Yeah. For, on Nickelodeon with uh, Brandy Norwood. Now, I knew Brandy Norwood as a singer, right? And then she's now on TV acting in, in a show. And I've seen other musicians in films, but it never re that thought process never really clicked in until I saw her doing it. And I was like, wait, hold on a second. This is acting and storytelling is an actual job, right? In Nigeria, I never really considered it as a job. I consider it as a hobby. And we can talk more about what I did back then, but I saw it more as a hobby. But this is an actual job. If Brandy can do it, then I can do it. And then that's when I decided, you know what? I love story. I, I love acting. And that's how it sort of started out. And that was from that moment, from when I was 15, it was basically locked in that that was what I wanted to do with my life. And, and, and I've had that laser Okay, it's not laser focused because, as you've told, lasers can be wide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very massive laser that just focuses on that sort of uh, area of of a career, right? And I've been since fifteen. I've had that locked in that that was what I wanted to do, carrying on. And if you look through all of the other careers growing up that I've always wanted to do, was always because either it was about someone doing a, telling a story or I saw it in movies and I saw it on in mm. plays and so on. I saw that story. Like, soldier. Being told. like that's, that's so common in kids media and in adult media and film TV. Exactly. I, I grew up watching uh, first blood and Rambo and commando and predator and so on. So it's all about soldiers, right? Jumping in and, and doing stuff. So because of that story being told, I wanted to be that character. So looking through all of it, that's exactly what enticed me to be to love those professions because of the storytelling. And that's basically now why I've fallen into this. And as you said, all the, the list of everything that you said are all tied in with storytelling. So, yes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what was it about Brandy in, in Moesha that made you go, oh, like, was it, was it just because you knew her already doing something else and you saw her shift? Or was it um, that, that you had a wee crush? <laughs> yeah, to, funnily enough, um, and I've thought about that as well, um, I didn't have a crush on Brandy. Uh, okay, I again, I grew up with in Nigeria, there's a lot of RB and hip hop, right? So I grew up knowing Brandy as a singer, right? Mm. So, and there were three at the time around the same age there was Aaliyah, there was Brandy, and there was The Brat, right? The Brat, she's a rapper. Uh, Aaliyah, rest in peace, she was a singer, and Brandy was also a singer, right? Now, the crush was on Aaliyah. In my head, it was like Aaliyah was the crush, Brandy was the best friend, and the brat was the girl that if you wanted to beat other people up, you would call her, right? If you need to go into a fight, you would get the brat on your side, and you, the two of you, you'd be standing behind her, she'd be like, she'd be like, and what? And you'd be behind her going, yeah, what, what? So that was the, the three for me. So it wasn't a crush on Brandy, but it was just the fact that I knew nothing else about what she did except singing. And the moment she popped up on a TV show and she was leading the TV show as an actress who, and it, who had, it was not about like her being a singer. It was just about her being a teenager. And, and again, like I said, I've seen other TV shows. I've seen other films where singers and actors, you know, singers were acting in it, right? But it just never clicked in that it was. Oh, that. Yeah, but I think I think on. it's because um, Brandy was the lead. Like she was yes. Moesha. The show was called Moesha. Do you know? I, I think that's the difference. Like, because you're right. You do see, like, if you think of um, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, like years ago, he was just the Rock originally. He wasn't Dwayne anything, and then he appeared in. Uh, in terrible CG, even for the time, um, in the Mummy Two, in the Mummy Two, yes, the big scorpion thingy. Um, but but then he got a film of his own, and I, I remember because similar similar to that with Brandy Moesha, I, I remember looking at that going, wait, but he no, 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 he's a wrestler. Oh, yeah. you can you can change, you can yes. do what you want. I see. Um, so I, I do I understand that kind of thing. I, I had it with the Rock for some reason. No, <laughs> by that point for me, I pretty much had established the understanding that oh no no people can 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 and often do move from one bit to the next, especially when it comes to acting, right? You, and you had football players like Vinnie Jones, for example. It's like yeah. Vinnie, who, who people now when you if you show a picture of Vinnie Jones, they think of him as Vinnie Jones the actor. Yeah. Not the chopper. They used to break legs on uh, part of Wimbledon football team, right? Nobody thinks about that. Same thing with David Beckham. I mean, David Beckham's kind of moved back into football, being uh, a manager of, um, I think it's, uh, is it Inter, um, oh, Inter man, Miami? You're, you're on the wrong podcast. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Well, he's moved back into football, but more yeah. managerial. But there was a point where he'd moved into the acting world where he'd started work, you know, working with Guy Ritchie and so on. Um, so that's it, it's now so fluid that people flow in and flow out and whatnot. But that moment for me was a seminal point in my in my career and my formative mind where I saw. And I think you're right. I think it's the fact that she was headlining the show, whereas yeah. with other people I'd seen, they were guests star for the yes. one episode or they were. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or they were the best friend or the cousin who came to visit for a month. You know, that's that's all those kind of things. Exactly. So, was there any story then when you were younger? Like, what was the, what was the first story in your head that really sucked you in and pulled you in? And I don't, I don't want to say the word obsessed, but you, you know, when you're a kid, 
like I know for me it was um, Roald Dahl's Matilda like I have a really clear memory of finishing the book feeling sad for around 33 seconds and then just closing the book and opening it and starting again on page one so like what was for you what was the very first um, story that sucked you in so for me, and again, and again, if you follow my history, a lot of stuff is is performative, right? So film, TV, um, theater, that's basically what it is. The book stuff, which is what I'm now kind of immersed in, pretty much came later on. So for me, it would be Bugsy Malone. Uh, so oh, yeah. yeah, so Bugsy Malone was the one film that we watched on repeat. We knew the songs inside out because essentially it, it, they were kids, right? They were playing grown-ups and that's what we did so we'd watch the we'd watch the film and it would just jump out and my dad back in nigeria had this you know huge vhs um camera and we as uh, i live with my family we're a big family we all live together i, I was the youngest I'm, i am still the youngest of four um so yeah but i don't know i don't know what my dad's been up to but anyway he's not gonna listen to this it's fine um so I'm the youngest of four and my two brothers above me and my uncles and cousins, we grabbed the camera and we just replicate something. And so we, we did that, right? I, would, I was always the one who wanted to get in and be more involved, but all the older ones were like, nah, we'll just do our own thing. Yeah. Exactly, right? So that was it. And we made videos uh, of various types of things, various stories that we came up with. Um, my elder brothers and my cousins, they'll make the video and we'd watch it and I'd be like on the side, I'd be like behind the scenes, right? So I'd, I'd come in, I'd be the one who'd help mix the blood and, you know, make the sound effects and so on and so forth. And I'd want to be on camera, but it'd be like, no, 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 later, <laughs> late, the next project we do, you'll do, you'll do that. But Bugsy Malone was basically what inspired that because we saw kids doing, we saw kids our age yeah. doing it, right? And the pie fight at the end was basically, you know, whatever, it was glorious. So we saw that and that was basically the story that I kept going back into and saying, yes, that's what I love about storytelling. I love about films. I love about acting and so on. So that would be the one I'd go with. Mm. You've, you've hinted at, well, not hinted at, you said outright. One thing I'm noticing in common a lot um, is, and not, not, every, not everyone I've had on the show, but most people I've had on the show, they're always like, oh, my whole family, we all read together or we all talked about the same thing or we all sat down and watched this particular show or this movie, or in your case, we all used to reenact and make our own movies for fun. And I think that's the thing. It just shows like it, for some people it is inherent. It is within them, but it's also in the environment that you kind of grow up in. And Yeah. I mean, it did but back then because it was, all, it was all about fun. Right. So that's what we did um, growing up. Actually, funnily enough. Um, and this is, this is the weird part. A lot of, a lot of the aspect of actually doing it for fun was when I was back in Nigeria. Right. When I came into the UK it became more of a serious thing. So, you know, I, and I know that there are uh, amateur dramatic societies everywhere where you go and do acting for fun, but I never gravitated towards them. I, I don't know why. It just, I never had that opportunity uh, or I never let myself fall into that opportunity. I always went towards the more serious part of things mm. after coming to the UK. So um, the first acting thing I did in the UK was for, or, uh, you know, my, my sixth form, jumping in and, and being in Guys and Dolls, being on stage Guys and Dolls, uh, and then moved on from that, went to university, and then just went straight to the drama society and started working with the drama society and so on. So essentially all the acting stuff I, wa I was doing after coming to the UK was more serious and career focused. Whereas back in Nigeria, and that's the reason why I never really saw it as a career, it was fun, right? You'd be doing stuff on the weekends, in the evenings for fun, 
Um, and then, you know, while you're studying to become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or something important, something big and, and useful, yeah. you know, you, you, as a hobby, you can go do the acting thing, which is why we all did that together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's something I think hasn't changed a lot of, <clears throat> I, I, I'm sure there are some parents out there who are like, you want to be an actor? That's fine. Yeah, you can go for it. Like I do remember my own, um, I was a little bit into acting. Uh, a lot of it, not a little bit, a lot of it into acting uh, as well in my younger years. And I was actually literally there with my college applications, uh, looking at and had acting, teaching, uh, and my mum just like smacked the acting one out of my hand. And she just literally said, you can do that in the afternoons, teaching, you, you, you'll have time, you'll have more than enough free time teaching. I was like, fair enough. Um, that's a similar thing that happened to me well not uh, she my mom my mother didn't slap it out of my hands um she basically she said i'll make you a deal right you go finish your education get a you know full-time degree in a serious subject doesn't matter what it is just a serious subject as soon as you finish that once you get that degree whatever you want to do go for it right and i you know in hindsight i can see what she was trying to do she was trying to say look go, you know, have something that's like a buffer in case anything were to happen like a fallback plan right you can always have that fallback plan to always fall back yeah. on plus you never know by the time you get once you've got your degree you may have given up the hope of doing this because the acting thing might just be a fad and as soon as that's done it's out of your system and you don't have to worry about it anymore and I was like, sure, absolutely. So I went and I did psychology, right? So I, I went to the university, I got a psychology degree. But while I was at university, I still kept on with all the acting stuff, joined the drama society, even though I was in uh, the psychology department. I think I was in Royal Holloway. I was one of the first students um, to ever try and cross that boundary where I was taking, uh, they, they never had uh, where you could do multiple subjects at the same time. Not in that sort of, completely opposite science and, and arts in that situation. I was the first student to, because I, I lobbied quite a lot to try and get it done. I think I'm the only student that has done that as well. Um, so I then started taking some modules in uh, drama, even though it wasn't going to contribute to anything at all, but I was allowed to sit there. Um, and when they were doing their final drama projects and so on, I was able to go in and, and audition and get roles in final drama projects and so on. So I, I was doing that as well. And then I graduated, got my degree, and I was like, never touch psychology ever again. Although every job that I've had, every like non-acting job, to pay the bills. And that's the second part. I think this is a sneaky thing to my mom. I think my mother was thinking, she was like, look, by the time he gets to that point, he's going to become a proper adult. He's going to have bills to pay. He's going to have all that stuff. He's going to try and get work in order to, and that would then kill that ambition. Again, this is me just thinking that's what she did. Um, and that's what happened, right? So yeah. straight out of uni, had um, loans, student loans to pay back, overdraft loans that I had taken out and so on. So I had to get jobs, right? And with every job I got, it was always the fact that they would look at my CV and they'd see that I graduated with a psychology degree and they're like, oh, wow, psychology, that's very good. And I think that's pretty much what got me every job. They didn't look at anything else. They're like, oh, you know, he, he's got a psychology degree. He must be good at something, right? So give him the job. And I'm like, all right, fine. I'll take yeah, the job. Let's go. <laughs> I've, I've had a couple of HR people actually say to me, it was like, yeah, you know, we had a ton of people applying for your role, but we saw your psychology degree and we just thought, you know, he's just good. Let's go with him. So, like, okay. <laughs> I, so, I, so that was the benefit, but I've not touched my degree. I, I, I know people that I graduated with uh, who were in my class who are now like, this, this, um, this lady 
who is a clinical psychologist at the moment. She worked with prisoners. She's doing proper, really good, yeah. like what I would consider the Lord's work, if you will, right? She's like, she's actually doing good for society. And I'm not. So, well, I say I'm not anyway, but with my psychology degree, that's just, it's collecting dust somewhere. It's kind of like the, you know, like your driver's license. That you're, you know, you, you, if you, a lot of people, a lot of adults have their driver's license and it actually is fine. I don't, I have a provisional license. I've had three provisional licenses all expire on me. I get the provisional license because I don't like driving at all. I get a provisional license and then it's like it expires in three years. I'm like, oh, you know, it's fine. I'll let it expire. Yeah, there's something else will happen. And I'm like, okay, I need to go in. I'll go back in. I'll do my test. I'll ace the test. I'll go and do the, you know, whatever. I start doing my driving tests, right? My driving lessons. Yeah. I never get to the driving test part. The first time was I was like 19, no, I was 17. I was about to go to university and I had it all lined up. I got my driving lessons all sorted out. I know this is a deviation, but I'll just come back to it. <laughs> um, did, did all that stuff. And then it was a case where I had enough money to either go and do my driving test and pass and then have a driver's license or go to Alicante with my friends. Um, it's safe to say I had a fun time in Alicante. <laughs> It was amazing. Um, of course. Yeah, of course. And then a whole bunch of other stuff afterwards and so on. So my provisional license has expired three times. I've never renewed it. And then Uber came. And I'm like, what's the point of getting a license? I've got an Uber app. If I need to go anywhere, I can just get an Uber. Some stranger comes to my house, picks me up, takes me someplace else. Luckily, it doesn't kill me. So I'm fine, right? Yeah. That's, that's all it is. You can yeah. tell you're living in a country that has, you know, an actual effective public transport system because in ireland if you if you it, you either have a driver's license and your own car or you live in dublin that yeah. they're your options <laughs> i've heard that and i've heard that about america as well it's like no you have to have a driver's license again my work side of things um is always been they've always tried to get me to go to america and, and relocate over there and the first question my managers always ask me is do you have a driver's license i'm like nope like, nope. you're gonna need to get a driver's license i'm like and I ain't coming to America. <laughs> I'm, I'm staying here because um, I live right next to a train station. I can just hop on there and go anywhere in 30 minutes, like a yeah. Domino's pizza delivery. So I'm fine. So, uh, yeah. What were we, we talking about? <laughs> we're talking about you, so it's fine. Like, man, it's, it's my interview, but you're the guest. So, you know, you're leading this. I did want to ask you, though, because um, you, you've mentioned it a few times um, about moving from Nigeria to the UK. Yes. And when because uh in my research and stuff the other day i did message you and ask like how old were you when you moved because i like i uh, my parents also moved to countries we moved from new york where i was born to here to ireland my parents are both irish they want they just i was about to start school and they were like oh no we can't have an american for a son Ooh. um so they, they moved before i started in the school system there so you moved at a, kind of an in-between age so like you you were two too old to stay behind your own really mm -hmm. and you it, it wasn't your decision from what i gathered like it was your parents so what was that like because you have your own identity of your own life at 14 to an extent and you have your yeah. own friends and stuff so what was that like okay so um first of all i just want to say because you were born in i don't know why the thought just popped into my head you could be an american president that's great um, oh they wouldn't need they wouldn't trust me no <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm just saying. It's like, I, I don't know why. It's, I think it was a, a joke I saw someone say about Prince Harry. Uh, the, yes. Archie's yes. born in, in America. So technically, 
he could become an American president and that's uh, King George's way of getting America It was back. King George's plan all along. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, okay, so coming back to, to my story, um, essentially when I was 14, the, the, what actually happened was, because my father's still in Nigeria. So it was a case where my mother asked me um, when I was around 13, 14, and she said, okay, here's the, th- the situation. I'm moving back. And it, the reason why was because uh, because my, my, my father came to, Niger- to London, met my mother, they got married, they went back to Nigeria, and they lived 28 years, I guess, happy years. I, I don't know. Um, that I was the youngest. It was all oblivious. And I hear stories afterwards. I'm like, wow, okay, I really need to open my eyes more. Um, but, you know, it was at that point where uh, the, my, the brother just above me, the one we call the good son, in the family, uh, it's, it's an inside joke. But to be honest, not even an inside joke. I tell it to everybody. He's he's a doctor now. He's a he's a he's a he's a. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fine. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, dude is dude is he's he's crushing it in the medical game in in the UK. So he's obviously he's saving lives, and you have a YouTube channel. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So who's totally who's, who's superior? <laughs> Who on when we get to when we get to heaven's gate when it says so? What did you do for your society? I helped people write books. Did you? How many people? Well, I have 151 subscribers. So uh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> who knows. Um, yeah, anyway, so my mother, my mother needed to, she wanted to move because at that point, the good son, he was about to finish secondary school. Mm-hmm. And he, the plan was he was supposed to go to medical school. Now, had we stayed in Nigeria, the thing about Nigeria is they is have he, an ex- is he the eldest? No, 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 he's not. He's the okay. third. He's the third. So my sister was the eldest. My sister is the eldest. Um, she, she had, uh, she was back home. She'd finished. In fact, she was actually at university at the time. And this was what kind of like the deciding factor. Um, Nigeria has an, has, has an excellent education system, no matter what you want to say about it. Um, because a lot of the, a, a lot of the students there are very, very smart because of what they learn, how they learn the education system there is fantastic. The problem is the economic situation back then, right? Mm-hmm. So what was happening then was university lecturers were constantly on strike because of lack of pay and so on and so forth. So my two other siblings, the first and the second, were at university at the time. It's a four-year university course, and it took them about six years to finish because of Whoa. strikes. Yes, and that's the, that's the thing. So they would strike in like an entire semester. They would not be at, at university. So my, the good son was about to get into university at that point. And my mother, with all her genius foresight, said, he's not going to go through that. We're not going to do that for him. Besides... Even so, even a Nigerian doctor, and this is more about this geopolitical situation. Somebody who you know is a Niger, who's certified as a Nigerian doctor, when they come to any other country, is sort of regarded as a second-class, you know, grade, yeah. which is which is point, which is ridiculous because yeah. again, education system. But anyway, we won't go into politics. But so she knew that that was going to be a situation as well, a factor. So she wanted him to get his medical degree back in the UK, because then as a UK doctor, he can go anywhere in the world and he's regarded as royalty, if you will. So she had that plan for him and he was like, sign me up, I'm good. She turned around to me, she was like, okay, so we know you're 14. We know that you've got friends here. You've got a life here. Your dad's still gonna stay here. So if you wanna stay here and carry on. And I said, mom, let me stop you there. I'm coming with you because you're going to the UK. I'm going with you, I don't care. Um, she was like, you sure? I'm like, yes. 
forget my friends, I'm going. And it was that cruel. It was literally that cruel. But the reason why is because I saw it as well. I mean, yes, Nigeria for me at that point was great. They were, they, it, it was fun. And it's it all was you knew as well. Exactly. It was all I knew. But the UK was, was, was a new adventure. It was like the, it was a new frontier for me. Right. And I was like, look, I'm going to go there and I can start my life from scratch. And I have the, I have the, the sense in that regards to know that if I wanted to do anything, I can start from that point and I'll have far more opportunities to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And she took me to the UK and that's how I began. I was like, right from here although you know came over here i'm 14 what can a 14 year old do in the yeah. uk right and it's like it wasn't as freeing as i thought it would be a 14 year old in nigeria can do pretty much anything that they wanted to do they're pretty much an adult right not in the uk so i came to the uk and that was the first thing i found out and i was like okay it's fine i'll go to secondary school and do whatever i need to do Ugh. and claw my way from there but i still you know given knowing what i know now going back giving me that same question i'd still choose the same question i still choose the same answer i'd do that so that was essentially what it was and would would you um were you familiar with the uk at that stage had you been over on like family holidays or like visiting cousins that kind of thing yes yes um we we, um we came on uh regular well not regular but like every I, i think i'd come to the uk about four times in for summer holidays we'd come in so my mother still had family here so we'd come stay and i'd experienced it so i kind of had an idea of what i i my main experience of it was it was cold and it was like you know a lot of white people and that was basically what i understood the uk to be right so uh you know that was so that was my kind of understanding as to what it was so i had been and i knew there was that was what i was going to be expecting and then experienced more so yeah and then what was like you, you, you said you'd been in um, like we we're kind of similar but I was very young so I don't I didn't have as clear a memory but like my I had been in Ireland maybe like three or four times even though I was five when we moved over here which you know um, so it wasn't a huge deal like it was because mom and dad always called it home so even mm-hmm. though I never lived there at that point I called it home too so it was like oh we're going back home Um but what was the biggest culture shock for you then when you were 14? You said that like in Nigeria, you were practically an, uh, considered an adult and then you come here and it's like, I have to wear a uniform and do homework. Like, what was that like? Hey, I still had to wear uniforms and do homework back in, well, in Nigeria as well. But there were, there were three main things with the main culture shock. First, I've mentioned already is the weather, right? Nigeria is, I mean, we had two seasons. It was either a dry season or it was rainy season. Either way, it was hot. So there was that. Whereas in the UK, you have four seasons, which is always rain. So it was basically all gloomy. So that's basically the one main culture shock that I had, the weather. Second culture shock that I had was to do with, um, with space, right? So in Nigeria, there's far more space. People had more space, you know, we, 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 uh, around. There's a, a lot more land. Um, so it was, uh, you know, a lot more spacious. Whereas in the UK, you literally houses are just like block and block and block and block. And it's like all crammed together. And then the third culture shock was kind of a reverse of that whole space dynamic, right? Where, where you would, in, in, from my experience anyway, where you have people all living close together, I would assume that everybody will be all up in everybody else's business, right? Or you would know your neighbor and you'd be friends with your neighbor and so on. But in the, because I moved into, when we, when we came in, we moved to South London. So we're within London and London doesn't have 
or didn't have that, well, I didn't experience that kind of neighborly. Yes, right. People weren't really neighborly with each other. It was like, I don't, I didn't know who my neighbor was. I didn't know who lived on either side. I might have seen them so I could recognize them, but we never spoke to each other. I mean, I might try and say hi. And they're just like, what's this? What is this guy trying to talk to me about? Whereas in Nigeria, even though we had that space between us, it's like, I know the person down in, in, in the other house and so on and so forth in the neighborhood, right? I would walk around the neighborhood and I knew everybody and everybody knew me. Like, ah, it's that kid that likes to kick the football over to our house and, you know, the other kids and so on and so forth. So I walk past and like, yeah, he's coming back from school soon. You And so on. Everybody knew each other. It was that warm, friendly, um, you know, sort of culture that was there. Uh, and that was a huge culture shock for me because everyone was just basically really shut in and really like, you know, not, not necessarily suspicious of each other and whatnot, but that was essentially guarded. what it was. Yeah, exactly. Guarded. Thank you. That's the, that's the word. Everybody was guarded and that's exactly how it was. Um, and it would just be different when I get to school and you'd, you meet kids and everyone is now like you join your groups and so on and so forth. That became, you know, familiar. But when you came home, no one you couldn't talk to your neighbors you didn't have fun with your neighbors and i'm like i didn't know how to experience that but yeah i got used to it that was those are the three main culture shocks the weather the space and the uh sense of neighborly interaction or sense of community if you will yeah uh, it's, it's interesting because your culture shocks seem to be um neither positive nor negative like uh, do you know what i mean because sometimes um i found especially when uh, like as a teacher a lot of kids come in and we're, as a teacher in Dublin as well, you'll, there's always a new kid in a class, like yeah. somewhere in the school, if not more than two or three. Um, and, and that's one thing I'm always like, oh, what's better here compared to your last school or your last town or your, mm. or your last country, depending. Um, because I'm trying to be like, everything's great that you're here. And, and a lot <laughs> of the time, just, just to make, just because a lot of the times, especially when they're coming into a new school, they're like, anxious and they're looking around they don't know so I always try to keep focusing on the positive um so so for you was there any thing that this is better in Nigeria but this is better here in the UK oh yes oh plenty um specifically yeah um let's let's say so let's say things that were better in Nigeria that weren't that weren't as great I mean that whole sense of interaction definitely was was for me was better in Nigeria than it was in the UK. Also, not only that, I mean, yeah, kids can be mean and so on and so forth, but there wasn't an element of, I, I, there wasn't an element of racism in Nigeria. Okay, let, let me rephrase that. There was racism in Nigeria, but it wasn't as vicious as it was in the UK. Where, because again, majority black, but there were there were white people around. So, but the, the level of racism that you would experience as, and I was, I'm mixed race, right? So, mm -hmm. I, but the thing is, my skin color changes depending on the weather, right? So if it's really, really hot, I get darker. So people look at me and they would just assume that I'm, I'm dark. But my mother, no matter how dark it got, she was still pale, right? Pale skin. So the racism that I perceived towards her was not the same kind of racism that you could experience in the UK because it was more the assumption of her being either rich or privileged, et cetera. So nobody really was, you know, yelled, ne you know, negative words at her or whatever. They, the word was Oimbo, which would be called, which is white person, right? Which was more a term of 
hey, look, it's like an, it's like an alien. An alien <laughs> just landed. That's pretty much what it was. Okay. You have kids running up. It's like, hey, look, it's an alien. It's an alien walking past. So it's not like they're pelting you with stones or like, you know, the police coming, stopping you and patting you down and whatnot, right? So, so it would have been the, the racism you, you witnessed in Nigeria would have been more uh, born from ignorance and unusual rather yes. than from hate or like yes the other kind of thing very well put it's like you should be a teacher or something absolutely very or maybe well. a writer like, or writer <laughs> exactly no but you're absolutely, you're absolutely spot on with that because it wasn't from a place of hate it was from a place of diff in of difference right as you as you put it ignorance right so it's like they see they see like my mother and other people like her and immediately assume wow, that person is different. Their world must be really like special and so on. Uh, it, it did have an effect on her mainly because when it came to like work, there were, it, it, nepotism did exist in the industry, in industries as well. So people were hiring people that looked like them over people like her. And that kind of got frustrating. Sure. Um, but it wasn't a case of they didn't want to hire her because they thought that she wasn't good at doing the job, right? They just hired other people because, I guess, so I'll be plainly put, because of corruption, right? So they just hired their friends and their family to be in that place over her. So there was that you element. Just as you mentioned earlier, that there was the assumption that because your mother was white, that she was rich. Do you think there was ever a case of, oh, we'll hire him because we know he has, you know, three kids to feed instead of this lady because she's just a rich, rich white lady? I mean, you, you not. I mean, try, not trying to take away the the um, the goodwill element of that. There wasn't the idea of, oh, you know, this person is more in need of that position. But it's more along the lines of, well, it's okay for her because she's going to be able to take care of herself. Yeah. It's fine, so we don't have to hire her. But I'll give it to my friend. My friend can still take care of himself and may not be qualified enough to do the job, but I'll still give him anyway. So there was more of that element. Coming to the UK, on the other hand, is was completely different because again, I, I went to um, to South London. I grew up in South London when I came here, and I could see that clear racism actually exist. Right? I saw black kids, I saw Asian kids, I saw white kids, and although we all mixed, there was that you know racial um, tension that did exist and it was in the air. It was pal palatable. It was, is it palatable? Is that right word? Uh, it was. No, it, it was palatable. It. Yes, it was palpable. Thank you. It was palpable. It was sense you could sense the race racial tension in the air, and then add the police as well. Right? Again, the police that was an element of racism that existed in in London or still exists in London that I experienced, and I was like, I never knew that this was there. Now, flip that around, right? Where if you so we talk about the the positive from Nigeria as a negative in the UK. The positive in the UK compared to the negative in Nigeria at the time, as I perceived, if we talk about the police as well, um, you, you had a police force that, uh, even if they might, might have singled you out as a black person and patted you down and so on and so forth, that was pretty much what I experienced. I know that other, a whole bunch of other people experienced far worse than I did, mm. but at least you knew that it was like a structure in place that was fine. Whereas in Nigeria, you'd have there's there's an adage that um, that my brother used to tell me where if you're walking in the street at night and you see on one end of the road you see armed robbers coming towards you and you turn around and you see police officers coming on the other side of the road run towards the armed robbers because you'd be safer. Well, that would is because it's literally the case where in certain areas in Nigeria and it, it was rife and it's it's a problem. I guess it's probably being dealt with now. It's been such a long time since I've been there, so I don't really know. But 
police corruption was rife. It was terrible. Um, I lived in an area where there was <clears throat> there was this uh, this uh, section of the police called road safety, and effectively like traffic police, if you will. And I and I knew the guys that were there. And it would be a case where they'd sit <clears throat> there do nothing. And every now and again, they would just say, hey, I need some cigarettes. Let's go for a ride. And they would get in their car and they would ride down the road and just stop any car they wanted, regardless of whatever. And they would start saying, oh, you were speeding. Well, no, I wasn't speeding. Like, no, we caught you. You were speeding. Your licenses seem to be expiring and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'll tell you what, if you just got a packet of cigarettes and some money, give it to us and you can uh, go on your way. That kind of stuff. There was that level of corruption that was there that I never experienced while I was here. So you could see that there was something set. There was like there were um, the organizational structure set in place, and that for me was a, was just was great, right? It was the fact that you're coming to a country where something like bribing a police officer is actually a crime, and the police yeah. officer actually trying to force you to bribe them. I'm I'm not being naive. I know that that did exist in the UK it did but it wasn't it as apparent as you had exactly been. and exactly. not only that we're talking about your perceptions as a 14 year old yes. so like as adults if we were the adults then in Nigeria it, the, the corruption would have been far more apparent and you know it's, it's so it's it's a Absolutely. And even again, back in Nigeria, police would stop me and, and see if I had cigarettes, because again, a 14 year old is considered, well, at that point was considered an adult and a 14 year old could walk around with cigarettes. So a police officer could have stopped me, taken cigarettes from me and whatever. Whereas in the UK, from my experience anyway, it was not a thing that was common or, you know, like you see police officers. And again, depending on who you are, white kids would see police officers and not have in the same now anyway, white people white kids would not would see police officers and not have a not bad an eye if anything they'd be belligerent towards the police officers whereas the black yeah. kids that i hung out with or we, we all knew what to expect when the police officers were there but again it wasn't a case where i knew the police officers were not likely to shoot and kill me because for one they didn't have any guns which is different from the uk so it, those were the, the kind of elements that were different also the fact that in the UK, I knew and I just could sense it, even as a 14-year-old. I had four, far more opportunities in any area I wanted to go in the UK than I would have had in the in Nigeria. Because it that's exactly what it is. Because I knew people who, as soon as they got the opportunity <clears throat> to, they left the country and they moved, went out because of lack of opportunity. So I knew that, that was going to be a situation as well. So that for me was the benefit of coming to the UK over staying in Nigeria. Okay. There's a, it, it, there's a there's a lot there and it's um I, I, I want to acknowledge that you, you have spoken uh, on racism and your experiences of it and everything like that and if I knew you were willing to talk about that I would have I would have uh, di- dived a little bit further into it hey uh, I told you any question you want to ask me ask me I'm fine I, know, going I have so many that I want to ask <laughs> so I'm just making sure that you're aware and anyone listening is aware that is something maybe uh, we could have a different talk about for a different episode someday. Happy but now I want to talk a little bit about uh, some other things. So I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not being disrespectful. Being okay, let's move on from your experiences of racism and talk about something like that's that's not the intention. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna make a joke there, but again, I'll, no, I'll, I'll pull it back. Oh, go for it. It's fine. I need to know what the joke is now. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, you're white. It's okay. You can disregard a black person. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> You've gone red. Wow, you have gone 
super red. For anyone listening, I'll, uh, I'll put a link to this one moment on the YouTube video in the description so you can see how red I went. Just because, anyway, listen, I went red, but not from embarrassment, just from the sheer, oh my God, I can't believe he just said that. That's brilliant. So. <laughs> did warn um, you you said go for it so i went i did hey look i you know i said go for it i got what i deserve um i'd love then to talk about your writing because you've written and created stories in lots of different formats and ways um i mentioned your graphic novel 1-800 killer guy uh you have your um novel um which uh, the atticus oh, atticus the mighty yes Atticus the Mighty, I was going to say the Atticus Project for some reason, Atticus the Mighty, and um, you've also worked in film and everything like that, and it all comes under the umbrella, I believe, of Eight Foot Ants. Yes. So can you tell me a bit about Eight Foot Ants and what was the what was the build-up to it, and what was the straw that brought the camels back in terms of starting Eight Foot Ants? Okay, so um, with Eight Foot Ants, um, <clears throat> let's, let's build up to that point. So just really quickly, uh, trying to be as concise as I can be, which is a, a thing I don't know how to be. Um, <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> you can't tell, but yes. Uh, so I started off I, I started off after the whole Moesha incident. I wanted to become an actor. That's what I wanted to start off being. Problem was, it was difficult to get parts. So I figured, you know what? It'll be easy for me to write my own scripts. And that way I have a part I can, I can do. So I started writing right. scripts. Exactly, right? But then I'd write scripts and I'll give it to people that I know they want to direct and so on. And they'd start saying, oh, this is great, but I want to do this and this. And I'm like, no. And I took the, the thing back and I was like, I'll tell you what, I'll do it myself. So I started trying to direct the scripts that I'd written so that I can be in it, right? And then obviously I can't just direct it. I have to produce it as well. So I ended up being writing, director, producer, actor of the thing. And I in 2000 and, 2005, I almost had a nervous breakdown because I did a project where... It was it was this film that I wanted to do, which was kind of like a stage play, uh, and it's, it's kind of it's it like noises off, if you will. I don't know if you know the, the, the film, and it's a theater thing about. It's a film. Well, there's a theater show about it, but it's a film as well with Michael Caine, and it's about this uh, farce, right? It's a farce. Is this um, this stage show that is being put on? And you're seeing what's happening backstage and on stage at the same time, right? You're okay. Like back and forth. So that was the idea. And it was called We Give You. It was, that was the, the film project I had. So you get to see the audience members and you get to see the show that's being put on and you get to see what's happening in the, in the, in the uh, audience, in backstage. And I had this whole idea where it was going to be like found footage, not found footage, but like, you know, found footage, right? Because it was different people's perspectives with different cameras all over the place, you know, security camera from backstage, um, you know, somebody with a camera, um, Edinburgh scout in the audience, some friends shooting it for the director and so on and so forth. So you get to see everything from all those mm -hmm. angles, but having to coordinate all of that stuff as a writer, producer, director, you know, shuttle guy, house, whatever, doing everything. I, I almost just broke down. And, oh, yeah. and somebody who had the sound, just she just went missing. I don't know where she is. I hope nothing bad has happened to her. But if she's, if she's listening to this, you have my sound. Bring it back. <laughs> this is 2005. So, it was, you know, I, I've, I've let it go now. You don't I've care if it's 16 years later. Like, I, I need to know where she went. <laughs> Honestly, if I see her on the streets, I'm going to be like... Give me my sound. That'll be the first thing. I'll be like, hi, how you doing? Give me my sound back. And I'll take that back, right? So um, at that point, I was like, okay, I need idea. I need to figure out what I'm doing wrong. So I read, and uh, at the time, uh, uh, Kevin Spacey was the artistic director of the um, uh, uh, Old Vic in, in Waterloo. 
So I reached out to them. I said I was going to be concise. I'm not concise at all. Uh, I was, was going to reach out to them. Uh, I reached out to them and uh, he didn't answer me, but one of his assistants did. And she called me over to have an interview. And she was like, okay, first things first, you can't be all of those things. You need to pick one thing and work on it. I'm like, I'll take your advice. I won't, but I'll pretend I'll take your advice. So she was like, okay, here's the thing. We've got this thing going on called 24 hour plays. Uh, we're looking for writers, directors, producers, and actors. I think you should go as an actor into that project audition for it and see what happens. So I auditioned with like 10,000 other people. I got on, I was like one of 30 people selected. Right. So the whole thing was we have weeks of uh, workshops with various people that came in, actors, directors, um, Tom Hollander came in, not Tom Hollander. I think it's Tom Hollander. I may be mis- messing his name up. Um, very funny Spider-Man. guy. No, no, that, that's Tom Holland. Yeah. Um, okay. So not Tom Holland. He, if you remember Pirates of the Caribbean, the second and the third one, the, the, the bad guy in the second and third one, who was like the admiral of the, of the Navy, right? Oh, okay. Um, I think it's Tom Holland. And I maybe missed him. Him. He was on one of those people. Uh, and Kevin Spacey as well. He'd come on and he'd give us um, sort of like workshops and, and, and so on about acting and whatnot. Um, and it all culminated in this one night where the writers we'd all pair up into different groups. The producers would basically pick different people and in, in, in put them together in one group. The, they'd pick a writer and a director and they would write a sketch in it, the whole thing had to be a sketch had to be written. The actors had to come in and, and practice and rehearse the sketches and then go on stage to a full old, you know, old Vic audience and perform within the space of 24 hours. So we had all that stuff to be done. One of the greatest. I'm experiences- assuming you, you, none of you slept. Then. Well, no, well, the, <laughs> get all the, that done. the actors slept, right? So the, oh. the actors, we, we slept in shifts. So basically we'd meet up at midnight the, the first night and we work right through and the performances would start at 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. the next day. So the actors went to sleep from midnight till about 6 a.m. So we'd wake up at 6 a.m., go to the old Vic to go and find out which teams we were in. And then we'd go in and we'd get our scripts at like 7 a.m. and then start rehearsing from 7 a.m. right through till until 7 p.m. Yeah, exactly, yeah. until showtime. So we do that. And um, really, I kid you not, it's one of the best experiences in my life, bar none. Um, I, I say one of, right? It's bar none. Obviously, my, my, my marriage and the birth of our kids that though that comes up there too one of so, one of the best professional experiences yes that's much yeah, better yeah. yes exactly anyway oh, yeah. so that was that was the theatrical that was the uh the stage performance that basically capped it for me i was like you know what this is great i still want to carry on i want to do films right mm-hmm. so i started using that opportunity to try and reach out to other filmmakers to work with me and while i was still holding on a full-time job at the same time so that sort of pulled a, a, you know different directions um i did get into a number of different project uh, productions with some people teamed up with some others almost made a film but that kind of fell apart and i was like look i have met a lot of people in the industry who are trying to get stuff done so i want to set up sort of like a company that you know we can all work together on and a lot a lot of times when i was trying to work with people i would hear them say oh but i've got my own production company i've got my own stuff that I'm doing and whatnot. And everybody would come in and we're like, but I'd like to work with you on one project and then go off. And another person would say the same thing. So I figured, okay, how about, you know, a collective where 
you know, at any point I can do a project and people can come in and work with me on that project and we'll be working under the eight under this banner. And I don't, I, I don't know why, where the name came from. I think it was a, it was a friend. I think it was Anthony Chalice who suggested eight. He, I, the last time I remember speaking to him, he said he made, he'd said something. I heard him say eight foot ants. And I said, that sounds amazing. And he was like, I didn't say eight foot ants. And I'm like, but I think that sounds but amazing. I, did. I heard yeah. that. So that's exactly. I heard that. I think it's great. We're going to go with it. So it was like, fine. Okay. Uh, if you become successful, I'll get some royalties. And I've never spoken to him again. Uh, but <laughs> So I took that idea of eight foot ants and basically set up this, you know, the production company where I said, right, it'll be a, a, a collective where creatives can come in. You don't have to be signed to eight foot ants. You can work on eight foot ant projects as a collaborator. You'll come in, we'll work together. Then you can go off and do your own thing. And then I'll work with some other people and do that. So I was like, okay, should I just focus on one thing? No, I can't just focus on one thing because I want to do so many things. I want to, you know, work to get, uh, it was mainly supposed to be a film thing, but at the same time, I wanted to tell a lot of stories, right? And a lot of stories that come into my head, I can't make a film about it because then you know, it, it, it takes a lot to make a film, even yeah. a short film, it takes a lot. And then I got introduced to graphic novels and I was like, this is amazing. I mean, I watched Sin City and Sin City was amazing. Then I went and started reading the graphic novels and I was like, okay, this is actually quite good. Only thing is, I don't know how to draw for, to save my life, right? Yeah. So, yeah, but I was like, but this would be perfect because I can tell all the stories the way I see them in my head in a graphic novel and I can make it as elaborate as I want it to be. Um, so that could be something that I can do as Aid for Dance. And then at the same time, well, around, not the same time, a few years later, while I was still working on a graphic novel, Call of the City, which has now come out, um, I was on a flight to Thailand uh, for work, for the full-time job. And I ended up sitting next to this lady and we were just, she was asking me questions about what type of stuff can we, she watch. And, you know, we just struck up a conversation and I was recommending a whole bunch of stuff. And she was like, you know, you seem like, you know, quite a lot about films. Would you like to, do you ever, you know, consider doing a radio show? I was like, I'd love to do a radio show. I love to do nothing but talk about films, but I don't have any of the resources. All my stuff had just been focused on films, right? And trying to get up there. And she was like, well, I'm an engineer in this you know, radio station called Resonance FM. Um, we're looking for stuff, so go on pitch. I was like, oh, all right. That lady was Laura Sampson, or is Laura Sampson. She became my co-host on the show Shoot the Breeze on Resonance FM. So I then produced that through Eight Foot Ants, right? And we're still doing that. We brought producer David Campbell on board, and it's basically been the three of us doing the show for like three years now. Wow. So, okay. so that's how that fell under the... Just from the chance Ants. encounter, like... Yes. Oh, I'm, it, I believe in, I, I believe in, okay. I know a lot of people talk about destiny. I don't believe in destiny per se, um, but I do believe that there are signs, right? Mm. Put it as wishy-washy as you want. I think that there are signs along our path where if you choose to see a sign and follow that direction, it'll lead you to something that you're looking for, right? Um, so it'll lead you to one particular thing. A lot of signs could lead you in one direction and then you choose the wrong um, you make the wrong decision and then you fall off that path, but the signs are there to lead you in the direction that you want. That was perfect because I decided I wanted to get to that flight early. I sat, I was like, you know what? I could go and sit down or grab something to eat, which I normally do at the airport, or I could just go and sit down as early as I can on the flight. And that was my choice. And because I did that, 
She happened to be doing the same thing at the same time. So we had tons of time before the flight, which was why we started talking. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have met her yeah, exactly. and that wouldn't have happened. And then having done the radio show, I, because the show is about, um, you know, film enthusiasts just sitting down and talking about films. And a lot of filmmakers wanted to use that as an opportunity to promote their, their projects. So I got to meet a lot of um, producers and I met tons of producers who are maybe not necessarily household names, but these are working filmmakers who are doing the work, right? They're just getting in there and getting it done. Uh, Bijang Tong, um, who's in uh, Hong Kong at the moment, uh, Paul Knight, Giles Alderson, whole bunch of uh, the Shakespeare sisters. All these are all filmmakers in the UK who are really grafting to make good films, right? Yeah. So that then spurred back up the interest into making films. So I was like, I have to try and get it done. So I sat down, wrote a script and so on. So that's how basically everything started building up and building up and because I had set up this company of eight foot ants to allow me to be able to say, look, anything I'm trying to do, I'll do it under the eight foot ants banner. And that's why. So eight foot ants is essentially a company that is, uh, is it's my company that is there welcoming anyone who wants to come and work with me and if they want to work as their own independent producer, that's fine. Every time I try to say, wait, do you want to come on board as Eight Foot Ants as a producer? Everyone's like, nah, it's okay, uh, but I'll happily work with you. And so I'm like, whatever it is. And that's basically how the project has been going. So that's what Eight Foot Ants is. It's basically a, it's a, it's a, a wide-spanning production company that deals in anything creative. So far, we've got radio shows done. I've done uh, a number of short films that's under the Eight Foot Ants banner, the graphic novel that's coming out. And now, because of COVID, that kind of shelved one of the feature films I was working on because I'd written this um, psychological thriller called Pull Out Couch. It's, uh, it's about an emotionally abused wife who turns the tables on her husband when she traps him inside a pull-out couch, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was originally supposed to be a comedy. And then I was reading this book, I was reading Blake Snyder's uh, Save the Cat, right? Yeah. And it, it was it, it, in it, he was saying, take some ideas that you think are comedies and flip it, make it into a drama. So I was like, let's do, do that. So I took that idea. How do I make it more of a drama? And then that's where I was like, okay, maybe it's about abuse. It's actually a story about abuse and both emotional and physical and so on. And wrote the script, very, very dark. It gets very, very dark. Um, and I was going to shoot that in 2020, but then COVID hit and then, yeah, exactly. So oh, the that, things that would have happened in 2020. <laughs> I, I know, right? I know I'm, I'm just one of a million people who yeah. said that sentence. Um, so while I was, so because of the COVID and lockdown and pandemic, I was like, okay, well, I'm still doing the radio show because we can do that over Zoom. Um, but everything else has shut down. What else do I want to do? So I went on YouTube and I started watching uh, and someone suggested doing a book, but I don't know how to write books. All the stuff, I've written scripts. Scripts are great, mm -hmm. easy. But writing a novel is completely different. So I started watching YouTube videos on how to do that. And I found this channel called Me uh, Meglator, I Writely. And she's amazing. She gave a lot of advice. Um, she was talking about how start up, she said, said, one of the best things you can do is start up a YouTube channel uh, because that way you can build up an audience before the book's out. And then you have people who would want to read your book. Yeah. Um, and, and so I was like, okay, what can I do that would be, of service as well. I could always do a YouTube channel, which is like entertainment and try and entertain people. Uh, but maybe I can actually provide a service as well. Because again, her advice, you know, it's easier to, it's better to give and then that will pull people in. So yeah, you what's the phrase? You trap more flies with honey than vinegar. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, so I just figured, you know what? I'm an idiot when it comes to writing 
books because I don't know anything about writing books. So how about I just start asking experts, right? To tell me, how can I write a book? I've got this question about how to write a book. Tell me what I need to do. So I was like, let me do that. And I'll interview tons of people and then put that as the videos, right? Which would then slowly start to build people up. Meg Latour was on the channel. You were on the channel giving me great advice. Um, yeah, yeah, there was a, a post that came up saying, Ooh, who's the, who's the, who, it, was, it was somebody sitting right next to me, just listening to when I was watching the video. I was like, Ooh, who's that uh, sexy Irishman? I was like, yep, he's going to be on every video I do from now on. So, so it's, <laughs> sexy Irishman. Also, it wasn't me. So what was the other Irishman? <laughs> yeah, well, you're the only Irish person that's on the channel. Uh, <laughs> so that's how the Idiot on the Rights block then came about, right? So it's then that on the eight foot ants as well. And then Thanks once um, again to there was the whole idea of me trying to get the books done and then giving them to other publishers to try and publish. But I was like, well, the problem with that is if you'd like, uh, you, you know, there are uh, millions Dennis, of people trying to get, get their books published. If I were to try and go the traditional route, then I'm going to be waiting like years to try and get one book done. And, and I think that's something anyone who, who may be listening or watching this show, um, they would have heard me say in other interviews. But I don't think people outside of writing realize how slow the traditional process can be. I mean, I could give a fully polished, ready-to-go manuscript to a publisher, to a traditional publisher. Ready. And it could be two years before it comes out. Days. Exactly, exactly. And um, I didn't, I didn't have that time to wait to, to do to that. So I just figured, hey, Eight Foot Ants is already publishing a whole bunch. It's already producing a lot of sure stuff. I'll just produce it under Eight Foot Ants banner. So technically, thank, uh, I'm now publishing. Young, you know, Eight Foot Ants is now a publishing company as well. Exactly. So that's why it's just that open creative endeavor where any creative. Um, um, product that is going out, I will be doing. So I'm, I'm, I'm especially the spearhead for eight foot so Ross said, but I call it a collective of creators because anybody can just basically say, I want to work with you. Come on then, come work as part of eight foot. It's a collective in that you're collecting all these different people. Yes, exactly. And then you're releasing them once they're happy to go back to them. Absolutely, absolutely. It does. It's a collective in that sense, and it makes sense. Absolutely, that's exactly. That's how I. That's how I'm. How I look at it anyway. So. If anybody is interested in working on any eight foot ants project, they come to me. We work together. If they say, "Oh, that that was great. I enjoyed working on this project anyway," I'm happy to go. They can just wander off, and uh, and yeah, that's how eight foot ants came to be. And you've kind of covered there my next question, which was about idiot and rush stuff. But I'm also noticing that um, we're really tight on time. <laughs> so what I am going to do is. Um, I'm going to have links to your YouTube channel as well. Anyway, in anyway, the show notes and all that thing, I have to say, I've watched, I was, when you asked me to be on your channel, um, I was very honored. And then after, um, the before and after a recording of um, my appearances on your show, I was very interested and I actually watched an awful lot of your content. So it, it is a fantastic resource as a writer. And um, also it's just, it, it's, it's quite entertaining to boot so i highly recommend it to anyone watching or listening thank you thank you that i deeply but appreciate once you do that make sure that you're subscribed to me on youtube before you go anywhere near marcus uh, oh, <laughs> absolutely I'm finding the subscription rate is not great um <laughs> i i did want to talk a little bit more about your graphic novel anything but what i might do is seeing as i'm going to be having you on to make me go red about remarks about racism uh, we can we can do racism and more about your books um so We'll just go to the like the last few questions that I sure. ask the same questions to everybody, and it's always uh, it's always really different, really interesting. So when this interview is over and we hit record, stop, and all that kind of thing, what's the first thing you're going to do? 
I'm going to go hang out with my kids and my wife um, because that is essentially it, it, with lockdown, we're all trapped in together, right? Uh, but yeah, that's basically the next thing I'm going to be doing. Um, tons of, I juggle a whole lot of stuff. Mm. Um, that is primarily what happens whenever I'm not doing any of the creative stuff. I basically am trying to be creative with my family. So that's exactly what I'm going to be doing the moment we hit finish. Brilliant. Um, I mean, my, my next question is always, so what are your bigger goals as a writer? But I kind of feel like I know from listening, I mean, you obviously, you want to release and you want to publish uh, graphic novels, novels, films, like there's anything, but what, what would be, I don't know about it, what would be the one thing that when you get it, notice it, when that is, when you get it done or released or whatever, you'll be like, that's it, I've made it. I'm a full-time creative now. Um, it would be, it would be making a, it would be making a film and I've, I've got this, I've got this vision in my head, right? That it'll literally, literally be at the premiere of my first film, right? The a film that I am, I'm, I've acted in, I've directed, I've produced, I've written, and we are at the premiere and it's a packed house and we're there and I'm watching myself on screen, watching that project. And it's a success, right? Every, you know, it, obviously not everyone may be loving it, but at least people are enjoying it. That would be the point where I've said, yes, okay, I have now hit that pinnacle. I'm great. I'm, I'm happy with that. Obviously an Oscar or a BAFTA would be great too, but, you know, st- each step at a time. That yeah. would essentially be, I, I, if, if we were to put a, like a fine point on it, then it'll be that. And I know you shouldn't really rely on, awards as a way of sort of validating who mm. you are um which is the reason why i would say that but it, it, at the back of my mind it would be that oscar acceptance speech because at that point it would be the reason why i'm looking at that is because it's not just from me it's other people re- reaction to me as yeah. much as it is it is a sense of me standing there receiving something that other people have turned around and said this is what we think about the work that you've done. So it doesn't even have to be the Oscar. It doesn't have to be BAFTA. It doesn't have to be Golden Globe. It can just be an award. It could just be me standing on stage. It could be a five-star review on Amazon. <laughs> it could be. It could be, yes. Uh, as long as I can give an acceptance speech of that five-star <laughs> award, that, that would be it. So hey, you have your own YouTube channel. I mean, every every time you get a fight, you just have it up on screen and just stand up like, thank you so much. My That's exactly what I'm going to do. Done. <laughs> um, so other than your YouTube channel, where can people find you and all of your many, many uh, creative outlets online? So um, the radio show slash podcast is Shoot the Breeze on Resonance FM, or you can say Shoot the Breeze Show. I'm on Instagram with the radio show, um, shoot the Bre- at Shoot the Breeze Show. On Twitter, it's uh, at STB underscore Resonance FM. But if you want to talk to me about the radio show, Instagram is best. That's the best place. On Twitter with the YouTube channel, it's all across the board, I-O-N writer's block. So idiot on the writer's block. So I-O-N writer's block. That's across all channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, or if you want to follow me personally, I don't tweet as much. It's on Twitter. It's at underscore, it's Marcus underscore Ako, A-K-O. But I tend to use that channel just to retweet my idiot on the writer's block stuff. 
So that's that's because of all the different. I'm like, okay, I need to slow down on some things. So the, the me channel bit, it's more to read and check out other people's posts and stuff yeah, yeah. and retweeting my stuff. I tend to retweet. I tend to tweet more out of the idiot and rights block Twitter channel than the others. Uh, so there's that. You for the podcast, you can get it on Spotify or any podcast channels. YouTube one, obviously on YouTube. Um, and just or just go to eightfootantsproductions.com and see a list of everything that I'm working on, all the other projects, everything, short films and so on and so forth, all okay. listed there. All there. And of course, as always, I'm going to have links in the YouTube description and on um, my website and the podcast uh, show notes as well. And then finally, for my final question today, Marcus, what was the last book you read? Last book? I'm currently reading it, actually. Uh, it so is... It is Anya Pavel's. Um, oh, I, I, I always forget that it's the Moon Hunters. That's the one, Moon Hunters. Yes, I'm. I'm currently halfway through it. Love Anya Pavel's work. When I'm here's the thing, I started reading it and I was like, okay, so this is. I mean, we're not in the same sort of like genre category, and it's not a competition. It's never really a competition, right? But when you start reading stuff from people that are really, really good easily better than you you're like i'll i'll just stay in my lane and shall i i'm like it's like anya if you get into the graphic novel business i'm coming for you okay <laughs> so you know if you're doing graphic novels keep it as completely different genre from call 1-800 killer guy call 1-800 killer guy is a sin city-esque type graphic novel it's got violence it's got sex it's got bad language so that's my lane Anya, you stick to doing middle grade graphic novels, okay? You that's where you stick to. Don't come like this life. started as the book I'm currently reading is and ended with a threat. <laughs> with <laughs> a threat. Yes. That's I that damn straight. Anya, I think you're great. So yeah. <laughs> um marcus thank you so much for coming on the show it has been a blast and um you've taken us down roads i didn't know we would go down but i <laughs> think it was a, a brilliant interview and thanks so much for coming on uh, my pleasure i enjoyed every single second of it thanks once again to marcus for being on the show it was a great laugh and i found his story so fascinating especially his experience with the 24-hour play if you're interested in finding out more about Marcus, there are links to his YouTube page, his books, and his Twitter profile, all in the show notes. I'd like to thank, uh, this is funny, I'd like to thank one of my closest friends for leaving a review that really gave me a chuckle. Um, I didn't mention that last week's interview with Dennis E. Taylor, um, that two of my of my closest, closest friends are huge fans of his work as well, and I sent them both the link to the um, to the interview just to see what they thought and uh, one of my friends Jay left the following review and I'll just let the review speak for itself I know Connor personally so it really begrudges me to admit this is actually quite good <laughs> great, great friendly chats with interesting writers the Dennis E. Taylor one suckered me in trust me as a friend of the podcaster I'd much rather this was something I could poke fun at him about but unfortunately it's genuinely great <laughs> so thanks for that uh, Jay that was uh, as I said gave me a chuckle and it really helps the show and if anybody else out there would like to leave a review there's details at the end of the episode that's it from me for this week be sure to tune in next week when I'm talking to Jen Ashton a painter writer and poet we talk about her childhood how she dealt with becoming a mother at 15 
and her relationship with her Squamish ancestry, which is one of the indigenous nations in British Columbia, Canada. It was a great interview, and Jen and I really got on really well. That's it from me for now. Chat to you all later. Thanks for listening today. I hope you loved listening to this episode just as much as I loved recording it. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or over on Podchaser. Until then, be good, be brave, and tell stories. See ya. Thank you.